Hey, man, fantastic. Good on you. All right. Am I on? You hear me okay? This is a good-looking church. Turn to the person beside you and say, you've made an effort. Well done. You look good this morning. Absolutely. Yes, you did. Yeah, it's good to see you. Hi up there, everybody. Very good. You've made a special effort. That's good. Well, as Mara said, my name is Brian Somerville. I am a uh, pastor with uh, Christian Churches Ireland. And uh, what that means is that I get to work with a group of about 40 to 50 churches. And I spent my time now crisscrossing all across the north and the south and the east and west of the island, helping churches and just giving everybody a little shove on. How good is that? Is that awesome? And uh, Judith, my wife, is with me today. Please give her a huge round of applause. Thank you. It is nice to be able to travel, and Charlotte and Lucy, two of my girls, are with me as well. Mwah. All right, so we're, we're hunting as a pack. The other two are working this morning, so anyway, there we are. There we go. I'm on now. I can hear myself. All right, that's better. Hey, momentum is everywhere in Journey Church. What is going on? Tell you, God is going on, eh? Isn't it phenomenal? Putting stuff back because you need more people Two courses, three courses back. What is happening? What what's, what's in the water here? My goodness, fantastic. Look at your screen and everything. We're to the envy of the whole world. Hey, it's good to be here. It really is good to see what God's doing. Know John and Rachel for years and years and years. And uh, just excited to be in this sort of stream, dipping our toe in the, your journey of what you're going through. It really is incredible what God is doing. All right, are you ready for the word? Yes. Now, look, I've got 16 verses to read. Say 16. Can you manage 16 verses? That's a real church, no bother. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 6, okay? And uh, we're going to read the first 16 verses. Hardcore, all right? So a little bit of background to the story. I'm going to I mean, be super brief on the story. Brian version. Uh, the Philistines have been fighting the, uh, the Israelites. The Israelites go, hey, we got the Ark of the Covenant. Let's wheel the Ark out and everything will be okay. We'll just kind of wave it at them and the Philistines will fall away. Didn't go that way. The Philistines routed the Israelites and they steal the Ark of the Covenant, okay? The Philistines get the Ark. They put it beside their, their, their image of their God. And of course, we know what happens. The image falls down and breaks into pieces, etc. And then stuff happens in the five sort of major cities of the Philistine armies and rulers and country, and they're having all sorts of problems with the ark. And they come to the conclusion, we need to get rid of the ark. We need to get rid of this, okay? And so this is where we kind of pick up the story in 1 Samuel 6. 16 verses though, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. When the ark of the Lord had been in Philistine territory seven months, so not there that long, okay? Seven months, verse two says, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. What do we do? Let's, we just need to get this thing out of our country. And so they answered in verse three, if you return the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it back to him without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him, then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. Verse 4 then, the Philistines asked, what guilt offering should we send him? And so they replied, five gold tumors and five gold rats, I'll, I'll park that in a minute, hang on, according to the number of Philistine rulers, because of the same plague has struck you and your rulers. So in, in the Philistine territory, there are five major cities, and in each of these five major cities, historians are telling us there was the bubonic plague carried by rats causing tumors. And so what they thought is, if, if we will literally 
idolize our suffering, if we will create idols of our suffering, the rat and the tumor, and put it on the cart along with the ark, as the ark carries away from us, so the rats and the plagues will, will leave the nation and the country. That's what they are doing here, all right? So verse five, make the models of the tumors of the rats that are destroying the country and give glory to Israel's God. Perhaps then he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Verse 6, and they, they pull in some Israelite history. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Look what happened to them. When Israel's God dealt harshly with them, did they not send the Israelites out so they could go on their way? Now verse 7, are you still with me? We're still engaged, okay. Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have been calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Verse eight, take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in the chest beside it, put the gold objects, that's the rats, the tumors we're talking about, you're sending back to him as a guilt offering, then send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. Isn't this exciting? Verse 10. So they did this. They took two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their calves. The reason they picked two cows with calves who'd never been hitched, they wanted to make sure that God was in it. Because everybody knows, if you're from a farming background, okay, that a new cow with a new calf will not leave it unless some other power overtakes it to keep going. So they wanted to make sure that God was at work. So they did this. They took the carts. Verse 11, they placed the ark of the Lord on the cart along with the chest. And then verse 12, the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. And so the cows were mooing after their calves, but they still went on the way to Beth Shemesh. As the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh, verse 13, now the people were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. And then the people went to town. They chopped up the wood of the cart, sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. Verse 16, we've made it. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. Amen? Don't you love the Word of God? You're dismissed. You can go home. Okay, that was, that's long enough. Then we'll just pray for a second. Father, Father, we're already marveling at all of the ways you have been building and challenging and moving in this service. Lord, from connecting in the car park to hanging out, sort of chatting before the service starts, and then incredible worship, and faith is rising and growing, and all things are possible. You're on the move. There's a miracle in the house. Lord, stuff is happening in the room. And now we come to gather around your word. And one thing we want to happen here, Lord, if we may ask of you, is that would your word collide with your spirit so that the word of God collides with the spirit of God to establish something of the kingdom of God within us that was not there before we came to church. 
And so, Father, the result is that we leave this room with more of God, with more of Jesus, and more of His reality than we've had all week. And so, Father, we pray, give us the ears to hear, the attention span, Lord, to lean in and to discern what it is through all of the words that we'll hear that you just want me to specifically hear from you today. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. All of Journey said, Amen. Amen. There are a bunch of different ways of looking at this story today, but the way I want to come at it is actually from the position and the perspective of Israel when this was going on. For seven months, we've learned the Philistines have had the ark. That means for seven months, they have had not, they haven't had the ark at all. There has been this huge God-shaped space in their life. How many people know what it's like to lose a thing? Come on, hands up. We all know what it's like to lose a thing, okay? A, a, a large number of years ago, Judith's mom unfortunately passed away when she was around 16, 17 years of age. Over the years, Judith and her two sisters do this beautiful thing every New Year's Eve or New Year's Day where they would take each of their mom's ring. They have a wedding ring and an engagement ring and a signet ring, and they would swap each of those rings around at the start of the year, and that would be the ring they would wear all year. Not a beautiful thing, just the loveliest thing that we get to watch, and of course, she takes, takes part in. It's a beautiful thing. So you can imagine then the drama when we are ready to go to uh, Dublin Airport. It's about 12.31 a.m. at our house in Eglinton. We're driving to Dublin for a 7.30 flight about three or four weeks ago at the middle of August. We're heading to uh, Dubrovnik, we're heading to Croatia. The car is packed. I'm in the car. The kids are in the car. The kiss is in the car. The car is even turned on. No Judith. No Judith to be found at all, okay? And we're waiting, and because it's late, I wasn't going to toot the horn, obviously. I'm a man of taste and decorum, and I wasn't going to do that. And so next thing, we're just waiting, and we're, we're tapping, you know. Judith comes down out of the house, opens the front door. I can't find my mom's ring. And so what happens is sometimes if she's not wearing the ring, she'll put it in a box and hide it around the house. Anyone hide stuff around the house? Okay, we'll hide things around the house. And so because we weren't taking it with us to Croatia, all right, Judah thought, I'll have a quick look, make sure it's there, settle myself, and I'm off on holiday. Away we go. Can't find the ring. We empty the car, kids out, I'm out, and we tear that room apart. No ring. It got to the stage where we had to go off on holiday not knowing where the ring was. Imagine that. Now, let me fast forward. We found the ring, okay? You know where it was? Exactly where we put it. Ever heard of blind panic? Yeah. It was right there. And we just couldn't see the thing, okay? But we all know, everyone, what it's like to lose something of value to us. Israel had just lost, as they thought, the presence of God. There wasn't this temple, this space where the presence of God once stood. And for them, everybody, this was a symbol of the presence. It was the symbol of their distinguishing mark as a nation. It built their faith. It celebrated everything who they were. It was central to their identity, to their confidence, and to their national standing. And now the ark was gone. There is this huge spiritual space. And I want to ask you today, is there anyone watching online, anyone in the room or listening to this service later in the week that's living right now with a huge space where faith used to be, where the presence of God felt like it always was, but at the minute you just can't see God, you just can't feel God, you can't hear God, it is almost like your faith 
has been stolen. Whether it's unexpected tragedy, whether it's illness, redundancy, our own mistakes and regrets, whatever it might be, offense, anyone offended, do not raise your hand. Anyone out of the bitterness of that? Some of us, we're feeling forgotten and overlooked. Some of us are trying to navigate the patience of what it means to have unfulfilled promises and unmet expectations. And as hard as those things are to say to you, they're harder to receive in life, but they are coming to you. And the problem with all of these things is they can try to silence your song. They can try to snuff out your dream. They try to steal your vision, to smother your hope. And taking that all together, what they try to do is to erase the reality of God in your life. Is anyone in the room going through a thing or in the middle of a season where the reality of God is slowly being rubbed out? Well, what if this morning we would consider that to the Holy Spirit is just to have enough power to flan into flame a flicker of faith within your spirit. Just as the Philistines sent the ark of the Lord back, I believe this for some of you in the room, that God is bringing it back to you this morning. God is bringing it back. There is somewhere in your faith horizon, when you look up this morning, you can see an image of a cart, whatever that is for you, and it's coming across the the horizon to you, and I believe with all of my strength today, God is bringing it back to you. Let me give you three things before he brings it back. It's always three. Three things that will help us navigate, understand, interpret, apply what it is we're going through. And there's three things about the enemy that are important that I want to bring to our world. The first thing is this, everybody. It is important to know your enemy. Amen? It's important to know your enemy. And I heard this quote recently. A wise man gets more use from his enemies than a fool from his friends. What a line. And when we're we're up to it, when we get an understanding of how the enemy operates, okay, we become more clued in as to how to respond. In our text today, who is the enemy? The? Excellent. Philistines. What's important for you to know is the Philistines are also your enemy too. They are your enemy and they are my, my enemy as well. And what's important is that they try to come after everything you carry. And everything that they do, it's really important for us to understand. They are divided into three battalions, the enemy that comes after you. So there's three battalions of Philistines, and Paul tells us what those battalions are. He says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, battalion number one, the world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at now in work in those who are disobedient. That's battalion number two, the devil. And then number three, all of us were at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the, our desires and thoughts. That is battalion number three, the flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Some of you will have heard that terminology, of course. Here's how they work. Here's what they do. The world distorts reality. Okay? It distorts it. And in the world today, society calls it post-truth. We're living in a post-truth. Imagine that. Living in post-truth. Okay? It distorts reality. The devil derails reality. 
And he takes your life and he tries to push it in a way that is away in the opposite direction from Jesus. He is the liar. He is the accuser. He is the tempter and the destroyer. Amen. And then there's the flesh. And what the flesh does, he disrupts our reality, whereby our old nature gets in the way of us. Have you ever heard anybody tell you that you are your own worst? Yes, you are. I am my own worst enemy. I proved it to my kids a few Christmases ago. We went to a, what is it, the, uh, the bowling alley up in, in Derry, London Derry. <laughs> I remembered up north. And uh, I thought, you know, one of those like things, the bell thing, hammer job. I thought, oh, I will show my fantastic strength to the children. Christmas time, packed. I mean, rammers to the door, to the door. You couldn't, you're walking around like that there. Packed out. Stand aside, children. Get your phones out. Put this on YouTube. It'll be something you've never seen before. <laughs> we were there with our friends, Gary and Sarah. And we were having a good time, whatever. Stand back, hold my coat, rolled up my sleeves, put the money in, brace yourself, everybody. Lifted the hammer as you do. I even got off the ground. I hit it that hard, like I jumped. I was like, bang, okay? It was fantastic. And I whacked the thing. Ding, hit the bell. Oh, yes. What I didn't see was the hammer come back, boom, and bounce straight into my face. I had glasses on at the time, and so the, what, however it happened, the hammer hit the, the sort of cross of the glasses here. No mark at all. Thank you, Lord. I thought I've got black eyes for Christmas. Happy Christmas. Do you know? But not at all. It was totally fine. I just get in my own way. How many of us get in our own way? So the world distorts, the devil derails, and the flesh disrupts. No. They all have unique little sort of approaches, and they all work together. And here's how they work together. Can you all see that ten of Coke, that Coke Zero over here? It's lovely. Let me pull it forward. It's cold to the touch. Oh, look at that. Here's how they all work together in relation to a tin or a can of Coke Zero just sitting there. It's not mine, but it's there by itself. It doesn't seem to be anybody's. So the world distorts reality. And what the world will do is like, I wasn't thirsty. But now I see the can of Coke Zero. Do you know all of it? That is, that is unusual because suddenly now I feel it. I'm parched. All of a sudden, I am complete, I, I'm desirous of a Coke Zero. All of a sudden, nom, 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 nom. Fun is all I can taste. Actually, my mind is now full of a thought of Coke Zero. The devil weighs in, and he, uh, you see? You see what he does? Trying to wreck my illustration, you brute. Yeah, we showed you. Resting on the everlasting arms, brother. What the devil does, he comes along, and he's like, well... Seeing as you're thirsty and there's nobody here, just take it. Just take it. It's just not, that's, nobody wants it. Just take it. Just take it. Go ahead. You say you're thirsty. Just take it. Then the flesh, what the flesh does, and we all know this, the flesh begins to rationalize bad decisions, doesn't it? 
The flesh provides you the excuses you need to tell yourself in order to proceed. At least it does with me. And so the flesh will weigh in and goes, look, hey, you deserve a can of Coke. You've worked all week. You haven't put your head up. You need a rest at Coke Zero. There's no calories in that. It's not going to put any weight on. It tastes delicious. It's cold to the touch. You know it's not yours. You deserve the tin of Coke. Just you go ahead. We're all in agreement. All the battalions, we're all willing you on. We're here for you. Take the Coke. You deserve Coke. Sure, aren't you thirsty? And so you begin to look at the Coke. And then you maybe look, you know, you'll a bit closer to the Coke, you'll stand a bit closer. Yeah. And maybe you'll look. <laughs> well, it is cold. all over TV, it'll go viral. And you'd think the world, the devil and the flesh would go, hey, well done, see you next time. Oh, no, 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 no. That's only half the thing that they get up to. Oh, they're back in. They are back in because the world starts going, did you steal that Coke? Because it lives with double standards. Did you steal that Coke? You, and well, you, you say, well, it's not mine. Well, well, I suppose it did. The devil lands in. Did you steal that Coke? Well, I did. What does that make you? You're a thief. So he starts to accuse you. See, that's how he works. He'll tempt you to drink the thing. And once you drink it, he'll call you a thief for drinking it. And then the flesh whispers, well, if I stole it, that makes me a thief. That means I'm guilty. What's the result of guilt? Condemnation. It's how this works. And it doesn't matter whether it's with coke, whether it's with anger or bitterness or offense, even in life where stuff has happened to you through no fault of your own, how we respond, how we choose to respond, we get the Philistine enemy, all three battalions coming at us in spades. This is how they work. But now you know you're able to turn around and respond in a way that honors Jesus. Come on, we got to know who our enemy is and understand what they do. The second thing that's important to know about the enemy is that really, in essence, deep down, the enemy cannot steal from you. Amen? Up at the top. The enemy cannot steal. It feels like they can. It feels like this unholy trinity can steal from you. You see, the, 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 the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant. And when they stole the Ark of the Covenant, they believed, Woohoo! we stole the presence of God. Hmm, that, oh, we stole it. And the Israelites thought they'd lost the presence of God. But hands up in the room, how many people know you cannot steal the presence of God? Amen? You can't steal the presence of God. You cannot lose the presence of God. So what went on then? What really happened? Here's what happened. The Philistines stole the object, not the source. They stole the object, church, not the source. They stole an object of faith, but not the source of faith the object represented. The Israelites never lost the presence of God, but they lost access to the object that represented the presence of God, but not the source. And here's the challenge, church. When my faith, when your faith is tied or represented 
or you know, to an object more than the source, then our faith is temporal. When you and I need a person, when we need an event, when we need a place in order for our faith to consistently feel real, we are in trouble and we are vulnerable to attacks of the enemy. What we need is a faith that is linked not to the temporal, but to the eternal, a faith that's willing every day, like your prayer and fasting week, to explore the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're doing. Next September, all our guys, as you know, they're, 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 they're four children. They're all, they're all 17. And they're all the one age. And so next year, next September, and it's the only thing everybody talks to us about, oh, they're all leaving next September. They're all going to university if they get their grades, etc. So the reality is for Judith and I, we're going to get the house back, okay? They're, they're going to go all in one fell swoop, okay? Now for some of you, that's like, party time, yes, stuff will be where I left it, glory to God. But for Judith and I, we need therapy, like we need help. It's going to be so quiet, okay? And here's what I want to, here's my point. If the quality of our marriage is tied to the objects in our marriage, our children, then our marriage is vulnerable. Yes, but by the grace of God, through prayer and doing life and sticking at it, okay, our marriage is tied to the creator of marriage, who provides the essence of marriage. So whatever comes our way, whatever we lose in September or October next year, there's no enemy that can come in and steal the essence of our marriage. Am I making sense? And so my heart for you is that if, if, you're, if your faith in God is only sustained by the title you occupy or the health you enjoy or, or the seat you sit in a church or if your favorite pastor is preaching or your favorite song is sung from the stage, then your faith is tied to the temporal and we need to make a switch today and tie it to the eternal. And this is important to you because there are some of you and it's hard, this, is, this isn't like a, a scolding, please hear me. It's real for you because some of you have lost access to position. Some of you have lost access to, to a loved one. You've lost access to a place or people or a salary or peace or hope and love. And that is, church, so hard. But the added problem to your life is that your heart for God has gone with it because your faith has been tied to it. And as a result, we can't find our song. We can't find our joy. We can't seem to activate our gifts. We're not alive to it all as we used to, and we don't know what is wrong. You feel that there's this gift-shaped space, a God-shaped gap in your spirit. Well, I want to encourage you today. The big scoop is this. You haven't lost your song, and you haven't lost your gifts, and you haven't lost your passion at all. They're already in you. You may have lost the objects that stimulated it, but you know what? This is what God is doing. He's leading you beyond the objects and onto the source, the provider of it all, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher and the perfecter of your faith. What we need to remind ourselves, I want to encourage you, Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation. And within this salvation is the reality that when Christ rose from the dead, he rose glorified, and this man was waving the banner of victory. He rose glorified and victorious, victorious. And in that victory, he overcame the world on our behalf. He defeated the devil on our behalf. He mortified our flesh on our behalf. And through his resurrection power, 
We have overcome them all in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to fight back. When the Philistine battalions start to move in on you through the word of God, the community of this wonderful church, through prayer, through fasting, you now know how he works. Fight him at his own game with the word of God. I want to remind you where, where Jesus says you sit. Right now you are seated physically in Antrim. But in Jesus, the Bible says you are seated with Jesus high above all principalities and powers. I'm not the first person to tell you this. You are not on earth praying to heaven. You're in heaven praying to earth. And because you are seated above it all, it means every enemy, every battalion is where? It's under your feet. So I want to encourage you, look to Jesus. Don't look to, in this moment, hear, hear my heart. Don't look to church. If you're missing the space, don't initially look to church. Not in the first instance. Don't look to pastors and don't look to songs. Look to Jesus. Look to the power of the Holy Spirit. Look to who he is. Look to the cross. Walk up to the cross. See it. Imagine it. Touch it, if you will. Understand that it is empty. Then from there, take a trip to the tomb. Understand that the, tomb is, the stone is rolled away. Walk in. Can you see it? Can you imagine? The thing that unites the tomb and the cross is that they are both empty. They no longer contain Jesus because Jesus is alive. You have been risen again with him, and all your enemies are under your Feet, you haven't lost a thing in Jesus' name. And the final thing is this then. It's important to know that the enemy can't steal, can't use what he steals from you. He can't use it. So why then do we relinquish it to him? He can't use it. As you read this story, it becomes really clear the Philistines can't handle the ark. They had no use for it. They had no place for it. They had no way to harness its power. The Philistines couldn't use what they stole from the people of God. And you need to know that the enemy has no use whatsoever for what he tries to steal from you. He doesn't steal your song because he wants to sing it. He doesn't steal access to income because he wants to spend it. He doesn't try and remove access to your gifts, as it were. So he wants to move in your anointing. So then why does he bother? Why does he try to steal, kill, and destroy? We get a little hint in 1 Samuel 6, verses 13 to 16. I'm not going to read it all. But remember the part of the story where the, where the guys are harvesting the wheat and they see they are coming back and they are elated. They're overjoyed. In an instant, they chop up the, 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 the cart, they slaughter the, the cows, and they build this altar, this sacrifice to the Lord. What this shows me, and I, I, I appreciate I could be arguing from silence here, but it shows me that there has been a long time since the nation of Israel has had a burnt offering. They were so excited at the presence of God they were so excited at seeing the ark. The first thing they did was stop wheat and harvesting and they had a sacrifice. It tells me that they haven't had a sacrifice in such a long time. Listen to me here. The enemy cannot steal your song, but he wants to rob the motivation to sing. The enemy cannot steal your gifts, 
but he will try to minimize your motivation to use them because he knows more than you do what you carry. The enemy does not want to use your voice. He wants to silence yours because he knows when you begin to pray, you begin to prophesy, and when you begin to prophesy, things begin to change. He doesn't want to use your resources. He wants to minimize you using your resources. So the enemy tries to stop you in your tracks to limit the reality of faith in your life so as to try and render you ineffective for the Lord Jesus. And I don't believe there's any person in Journey Church in Antrim and down Patrick, okay, that wants to be ineffective for Jesus. Hands up if you are here and you've got a, a whole heart to be ineffective. Good job. <laughs> Worship team, you can, you can pop on back up for a sec. Got one more little story. So he tries to run the motivation of your life. I said earlier that we headed off on holiday to Dubrovnik, Croatia. Anyone been to Croatia? Oh, it's nice. If you, if you haven't been, go and have a wee dander. Have a wee dander around. It's on the outside. It is beautiful. Game of Thrones, ter- never seen Game of Thrones of the devil, but uh, <laughs> apparently it was filmed there. More of the Lord of the Rings man myself. Thank you. Now, when you go to Croatia, I was just Dubrovnik's where we were, they don't use zebra crossings like we do here. When you're in Antrim, or at least certainly in Eglinton where we are, when you walk up to the general vicinity of a zebra crossing, what happens? The cars, they see you. Maybe you get a wee, wee finger wave from the steering wheel. We move on. All very pleasant, all very cordial, all very us, okay? Not so. In Dubrovnik, we found out. We were playing hokey-cokey with the zebra crossings in Dubrovnik. When you walk up to the zebra crossing, the traffic does not stop. It moves on for dear life. What we learned was that the minute you put a foot on, the traffic begins to slow. But until you keep walking across, they will not commit to stopping. Okay? It takes two and a half days for you to figure this out. So for two and a half days, this is how my family, myself included, tried to cross a road. Whoa. I didn't know you were stopped. Sorry. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> Entertaining for the kids and kept them fit for free. Here's what you do. You get ahead on you. You're like Moses. And everything stops. When you keep walking in the zebra crossing in Dubrovnik, you activate an unseen invisible law that stops the enemy, which are mostly Uber drivers, (laughs) from taking you out. When the enemy tries to come at you through the world, the flesh, and the devil... The only way you will progress in the life of faith, no matter what 
the city, the circumstance, the town, the environment, the situation, the only way you will survive and succeed and thrive and fulfill it all through the good, through the bad, is to keep walking. In a moment, if I may, I don't, I don't know all the cultural touchstones of, of journey, but I want to get you ready because I'm going to invite you to, for anybody this is applicable to, to, to walk this morning. I think of, and I'm nearly done, I promise, thank you for your attention. I, th I think of the like of Abraham and, 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 uh, and Lot. They, everyone, they fell out. Remember, they, they fell out. And they went their separate ways. And then you have this very interesting moment where the Lord turns up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to look up and see the stars in the sky and all of that and sand on the, sea, on the shore, sand on the ground, all of that stuff. And then he says to, and he says to Abraham, I need you to get up and walk. What had happened was that the two boys had fallen out. Abraham had kind of lost his sense of vision. He hadn't lost it at all, but he'd lost his sense of vision and purpose. And what God was doing, he says, what I want you to do is to get up. I want you to look around, see, connect to the vision, connect to the call of God in your life. And then what I need you to do is to go and walk. I think of Elijah and so after the story of, of the Beals, where he has this tremendous victory over the powers of darkness, Jezebel hears about it, and she declares this kind of, this, this death threat over Elijah, and Elijah runs into the field, away, far away. He suddenly lost sight of the presence of God, the call of God, the power of God, even though 24 hours before, God did something incredible through him, but he's lost it. He feels he's lost it. What happens next? The presence of God, the angel of the Lord, a theophany of Jesus turns up to him, nudges him and says, hey, big man, here's some food, here's some drink, take some rest. But what I want you to do now is to go on a walk. And he walked for 40 days to Mount Horeb. Finally, I think of Peter and the disciples in John chapter 21, who although they'd seen Jesus and in the, in the mystery and the wonder of it all, They'd lost something. Well, Brian, how do you know they've lost something? Well, because they've returned to their old job. They've returned to their old life, how they used to live. They're not, well, I'm going fishing, he says. So they all go fishing. Peter, of course, denies Jesus three times and he's lost something. He's lost something of that, you know, that moment where he promised Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll, all may run, but I will stay. He remembers this is going on in his head, round and round, and he's lost something. He's let Jesus down. Anyone ever let Jesus down this morning? Come on. Don't you lie to me. We all, come on. What does Jesus do? Brothers, have you caught any fish? No, we haven't caught a thing. Throw the net over to the right-hand side. Isn't Jesus amazing? Reminds Peter of the story of the miraculous catch of fish. It is the Lord, John says. Peter says, is it? He gets the coat off, end of the water, bang, straight onto the sea. Meets Jesus. What does Jesus do? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Look after my lambs. What's he doing? For as many times as Peter denied him, Jesus restored him. And then on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Spirit and they were sent on the greatest walk that is still moving across the earth today. My point is this, when we get a sense of losing something, we need the presence of God to come to us to bring it back, to keep walking. Because when we keep walking, we act the invisible law of faith over our lives. 
that minimizes, if not eradicates, everything the enemy tries to do. So here's my challenge. Everybody, would you want to get to your feet for me a little bit this morning? Let's all rise to our feet for a second. Here's what I, I want to do, and conscious of time, but I want to give you an opportunity to walk, an opportunity to respond. We're not going to so much have a huge prayer line of, of, of a prayer team and like that, but what I would mind, what I, what I, if you wouldn't mind, what I'd like to do, I'm going to count to three. And if there's any part of this conversation that you can relate to, says, you know what, that's me. I want you to activate your walk. Like Abraham, like Elijah, like Peter. Because I believe this morning, for some of you, God's bringing it back. God's bringing back that sense of passion, that sense of song, that sense of gift, that sense of calling. We are discovering today, you know what, I didn't really lose it, but the enemy's been having a day. Now, I'm a man. So whenever anybody comes to church and they say, would you want to come forward? I think a couple of things, almost immediately. Number one, what if I'm the only one? And number two, everybody else will know. And number two, we already know. Amen? And number one, who cares? Jesus died for the one. He rose for the one, and he come back for the one. So how are we going to do it? I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads, close your eyes, just to honor those who may want to respond. I'm going to count to three, and on three, I want to invite you to come up. Now, we've got limited room at the front, so we've got some space either side. It'll be super quick. What I want is to come forward. I'm going to pray a general faith-filled prayer, I hope. Then we'll go back to our seats. We'll have a song, and whoever's going to close is going to close. So it won't be protracted. It won't be long. It won't take forever, I promise. But I just want to... The reason I'm doing it, everyone, is to activate the faith of walking. It's to come out of where we are physically and walk into a new place of faith in the Lord. That's why I'm doing it. So if you want to come, you know what? I'm going to count to three. And if you want to grab the hand of the person who's brought you or with you, come on a couple, you want to come as a family, then by all means, come ahead really quickly. And if you come up the middle aisle, fan out right to the sides. But one, two, three, just come on out where you are. We're going to pray for you as you are. Just come on. Everybody, anybody wants to, and we have time for the guys in the balcony, come up, you know, your seats, that's fantastic. Just come down from where you are. Beautiful. Take your time. That's lovely. Just come on up this side here. That's super. That's lovely. That's great. No, no, that's Give me space there. Look, that's brilliant. And if you guys want to just even file over to the, to the your right-hand side, that'll be lovely too. Fantastic. Hey, look at all the faith in the room. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Just keep coming. I'm just, again, conscious of the moment and so so for all of us in the room if you're, if you're comfortable with this why don't you pop your hands in this open posture before you I like to think of it as two things it's a moment of surrender a moment of emptying we've had that two words this morning already superb you got to let stuff go come on who hurt you let that go the labels we're going to let that go the pain we're letting that go come on the offence I know I know you were in the right they were in the wrong but listen to me, let it go. Your vindication will come. We're going to let that go. We're going to surrender. We're going to surrender everything. The unmet expectations, the unfulfilled promises as yet, we're letting all of that go right now in Jesus' name. Come on. We're letting it go. We're not going to pick it up. We're letting it go. I know it's hard. It's easy for me to say. I know. But come on, in Jesus' name. Lord, we're letting that go. Now, the second thing is of an open-handed posture. It's a, it's a, it's a sign 
of willingness to receive. And so, Father, I want to pray today that in the name of Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, what the enemy has tried to steal, Lord, you're bringing back. Come on, somebody. What the enemy is trying to steal, Lord, you are bringing back in Jesus' name. Lord, there is a cart of your presence, as it were, coming over the horizon of our hearts and of our minds right now in Jesus' name. Father, even for some of us in this room, we can begin to feel our song bubbling up. We can begin to feel reconnected to the call of God. The promises of Scripture suddenly, Lord, are forming and shaping in our minds, even in our lips. Lord, God, dreams are forming in this room all over again because, Lord, you are restoring. You are placing back. You are returning what the enemy has tried tried to steal. Lord, we acknowledge today he didn't really have it. We didn't really have it at all. But the truth is, Lord Jesus, the truth is it felt like it was gone. It felt like it was over. It felt like the dream had died. But I'm coming back to Jesus. I'm coming back to Jesus. Jesus is the author of my faith. Jesus is the finisher of my faith. Jesus is the Lord of my faith. And for everyone in the room, and especially these guys at the front, I want you to do this for me in your mind's eye. I want you to crown Jesus King all over again. Not the dream, not the promise, not the hurt, not the person, not the place, not your favorite seat, not your favorite song, not your favorite preacher, not even your favorite Bible verse, not the thing you lost, not the thing that you think is away, not your gift, not your anointing, not your calling, all of that, forget it. I want you to crown Jesus King. We had a, of course, we have a new king. We've yet to have his coronation. But why don't you have a personal coronation moment with Jesus? And so, Father, I pray, Lord, in the mighty, victorious, loving, restoring name of the Lord Jesus. And for every person in this room, for those, Lord, who have faith, Lord, to come up and receive and be restored, I pray, God, that you would seal in everything that you've done here today. Because we know this week we'll have some things in store for us. We can imagine that, that can of, of, of Coke, Lord, how the enemy tries to weave and move and manipulate. One battalion comes in and does something else. The other one, oh, Lord, we, but we know now. We know to expect it. We know what to do about it. And so, Father, we're trusting you with our lives. We're trusting you with our song and our gift and our calling. And we say, Lord Jesus, have your way. Have your way. And everybody said... Amen. While these guys are grabbing their seats, could we have 10, 20 seconds of restrained praise to the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We bless you.